HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. It's Greenhorn Radio, and I'm here in the sunshine. It's very nice to be warm in the sun during winter and exposing oneself to all the benefits of photosynthesis, even if we don't actually participate ourselves directly. It still feels good. And that was a lot of silliness. Sorry. I am joined on the phone today by C.J. Centel, who is, well, he's one of my new favorite people, actually, and I just met him down in Arkansas at the Southern SOG Conference. Hey, C.J., will you introduce yourself and your farm briefly? Uh, yeah. Uh, my name is C.J. Centel. Um, I'm a farmer at Ecotone Farm, which is a small farm just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, um, still in the, ca- in the city limits technically. Um, And I'm a doctoral student in philosophy at Vanderbilt University, and I'm writing a dissertation called Freedom in Food, Slavery in Agriculture. Holy smoking. You know, I was just in Nashville this past weekend. You were? I was. What were you doing? Well, I was was noticing things, and... uh, Uh I was noticing a lot of interest in sustainable food down there in the Nashville scene. Definitely. A certain amount of big talk, but, um, but also just a lot of burger joints with grass-fed beef. That's right. That's right. That's right. What's going on from where you're sitting? Uh, not much. Not much. It's a beautiful day. The, the daffodils are in bloom, and the bees are out collecting Pollen and uh, my young son and I were just looking at our newest lamb. We had a lamb born last night. Uh, we're watching it jump around in the sunshine today. Smoking. Uh, and what what exactly what exactly is the nature of your farm operation, and uh, what is the relationship between the logistics you experience through uh, your entrepreneurial life? And the life that you lead on paper and through an analysis of the world uh, via academia. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, the farm is primarily a livestock farm, though we just had uh, four young uh, men come out this last weekend and, and have agreed to take on the horticultural 
development of the farm. Uh, but but for the last three or four years, we've done pastured organic uh, poultry and eggs, uh, and we raise uh, heritage hogs. We we kind of specialize in the red wattle hog, um, and we've recently gotten into turkeys and sheep and and beef as well. Um, so we're primarily a livestock farm at this point. Uh, we're hoping to do some uh, some development around CSA with what we call the superfoods, which are like perennial crops like asparagus and uh, mushrooms and berries and honey and things like this. But um, so you know, I, I did start this this farm while I was in graduate school, uh, and and had decided to do um, a dissertation on the intersection of slavery and agriculture uh, for personal reasons and uh, for social reasons. I thought that, um, well, for personal reasons, I was born into a, 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 an agricultural family in the South. Um, it's for sure that, that my ancestors owned slaves on one side of the family, and on the other side of the family, it's, it's very likely. Uh, so this, this question of agriculture and slavery was, was sort of personal for me. I needed to figure out what the relationship was uh, historically and in the present, um, because there are more slaves alive today than there ever have been in, in human history, and that's a numerical figure, of course, but uh, there are still uh, agricultural slaves, for example, in Florida. And since 1997, the, the Department of Justice has prosecuted seven anti-slavery cases in the balmy fields of Florida agriculture. So it's a personal question, it's a contemporary question, and of course it's a historical question about the relationship between democracy and agriculture on the one hand uh, and agriculture and slavery on the other. I mean, you know, Jefferson, if you're an agrarian, you you sort of look to Jefferson and, and people like even Aristotle, uh, who hold up agriculture as this morally virtuous thing, uh, and so what a what a good citizen does, even, um, and maybe the backbone of democracy. And we all sort of maybe have some of these intuitions as part of our democratic DNA, so to speak. But um, at the same time, Jefferson was a slaveholder. At the same time as democracy was was developing in ancient Greece, you know, most people owned slaves. In fact, you had to be decidedly poor not to own a slave. So um, these questions uh, sort of all intersect, and I I can't really say that the farm as an experimental apparatus has produced any definitive results. I mean, it has certainly made me think about the relationships of care and domination and and exploitation that go on up and down the ecological line, so to speak. but uh, my research has sort of really taken, taken me into some of these deeper questions about agrarianism in the present. I mean, if you think about Wendell Berry um, and the moral virtues and the, and the civic virtues of agriculture, um, I think that we've really got to, to you know, uh, pay attention to that. And I think it's very worthwhile. At the same time, I think we also have to pay attention to how these very forms of of organizing one's food supply have direct impacts on the social and political uh, organization of, of our lives. Um, so, I mean, I've really come to think that while, you know, some of the agrarian talk about moral virtues and, and civic virtues in agriculture uh, is important, 
I, I really um, have been struck by how much exploitation still goes on, both in terms of humans, in terms of animals, in terms of the land and the soil. So um, I think that, you know, for a vibrant agrarianism to, to kind of come back in this country, we have to deal with uh, slavery, in short. Well, and so and this is a very interesting. So this is a thing, and you know, we get philosophical, uh, but 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 in farming, it's always about the practical and the economic layers uh, as well. And you know, just to add yet another layer of of this question of servitude and slavery and indenturement, and I've just been reading now a book um, by Potsack. It's called Drilling Down. Which is, it makes the same arguments as you're making about um, the Roman civilization and mm-hmm. uh, and then and the plantation-based agricultural uh, empire, which was mm-hmm. early America and early American democracy, and then takes the point further um, by showing that you know while the average prosperous Roman family um, survived and had their lives powered by approximately eight slaves mm-hmm. um, and the you know, your typical kind of plantation economic unit perhaps had, um, you know, between three and five servants and then between 20 and so or so or, or 90 slaves, that the average human, in, in not human, but um, American, currently in, you know, your typical suburb has about 230 what they called energy slaves, meaning the work that is being done to support your livelihood in the form of petroleum energy, um, is equivalent to the exerted energy um, and work of 230 uh, humans. Yeah, and you even see this in the early 20th century with um, with white farmers in the South equating the tractor to a number of slaves, and it was like eight or ten slaves at first, I think, was the comparison. But I mean, you get this very early on. Um, yeah, no, it's very, and there's a good book on this topic. It's called Mule South to Tractor South. Mule South to Tractor South. Okay. And 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 another one is um, the economics of the cotton of a cotton plantation South, where uh-huh. really there is a very cold calculus being applied that says, you know, this is how many slave days it takes to do this and that activity. This is what percentage of your labor force is spent in cleaning yeah. versus in planting versus in weeding. Um, you know, this is this is a the organization of labor That's right. is a very practical concern, and we are the. Um, I just attended a training uh, about immigration out in California, mm-hmm. where I learned that sixty percent, it is estimated, of the farm workers in this country are are undocumented. Yeah, I think that's right, and. Southern SOG, I mean, I'm also uh, on the board of Southern SOG, Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group, um, and we're, we're about to take this issue up uh, that, that, you know, in the South particularly, uh, if you had to count up human beings doing work um, in agriculture, they don't necessarily uh, look like your typical family farmer. They're often migrant, they're often Latino, and they're, and they're doing most of the work, and yet they're invisible, and they, they remain uh, invisible um, under our current, you know, industrial agricultural system. No, um, remain invisible and, and are becoming more so. I mean, the thing that has been brought to my attention 
uh, in terms of these new immigration rules, the one in Georgia and, um, and in Alabama, has been that the social services that are accessible, forget grants, forget, you know, government-backed FSA loans. You know, when you're talking about public school and, and hospital access, even those publics um, and WIC and food stamp programs, even those public services are becoming less accessible to those of uh, questionable paperwork, we should say, yeah. because they're now under, you know, constant threat of being deported, you know, from one moment to the next, uh-huh. um, because those are now kind of checkpoints. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the, I think the question then is something very... Uh, it's sort of less philosophical in the high sense and more practical in this sense. Look, if if agriculture has been the place of so much oppression, how can we reconstruct agriculture, you know, in the service of freedom? I mean, you know, in short, I mean, if if agriculture is a natural home to slavery, how do we, as as young farmers who are trying to farm in sustainable ways, which includes social and economic and ecological sustainability, how, how, how does that work? Um, and at because, what I speed mean, could that transition occur when you have, uh, you know, when you look for examples of where that occurred in history, you know, you look mm-hmm. to places like Iroquois agriculture that happened at a far lower density, yeah, and you I say, mean, well, it's, it's, we're now at a situation in which potentially 30 to 40 percent of the population we currently have... Mm-hmm. Uh, is made possible only by synthetic the application of synthetic nitrogen to the right. earth systems. Mm-hmm. And how would you recouple, like, you know, that's a different, a little bit of a, again, I keep bringing in the energy part of this, but how do yeah, you, no, I, I how do you plan right. for that kind of a transition? I don't know how you plan for it. Um, it you know, it's, it's, you know, it's probably going to not be easy, I think, um, but I mean, does that does does your argument sort of suggest that people need to, we need to go back to towards subsistence agriculture, or back? No, my argument is my argument is we better think of a good argument. <laughs> uh huh. No, I agreed with that, and I have yet to think of it. But I'm 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 trying to think of it um, because I think it's the question is is very real. Um, because if you go back and look, I mean, uh, I mean, this my my questions have just taken me back further and further in time, and if you consider <clears throat> the the origins of agriculture that it may have been we may be farming you know in a relatively warm period and and you know in terms of human evolutionary history agriculture has only been around for 10% you know at most of our species history on this planet um and so you could even think of agriculture as i mean you know, biblically it it is the original curse from the sweat of thy brow, you shall eat grain for the rest of thy days, bread for the rest of thy days. Um, and as a curse, it, you know, if you think about agriculture as a curse, it was the original thing that got us off of, of ecological sustainability. You know, in ecology, it's the classic example of the hares and the lynx, right? If the lynx eat too mi- eats too much of its prey food, its population dies back. And so the food and population question is sort of, intimately tied together, and in that sense, agriculture was the thing that got us off of the ecological energy sort of uh, balance that, that might have existed before agriculture. Because, you know, one person can produce way more food than they're going to eat themselves, um, which is both the source of civilization, 
and the source of of that's where that surplus comes from that gets controlled and dominated and where we are now takes 230 energy slaves to support you know a modern american lifestyle um, so here we are uh describing a profound uh intellectual conundrum and and one that requires many many kinds of expertise and long-term thinking and political and economic and labor analysis um are you joined by many other minds in this in the, in this project yes uh yes in fact Tell uh, us there's who. a number of, huh Tell us who, who. Tell us who, if we're interested in this, that we should also think of reading. Ah, interested in reading? Yes. Well, James C. Scott. Um, James C. Scott is at the Center for Agrarian Studies at Yale, and he's written a number of books: um, The Moral Economy of the Peasant. Um, his most recent book is The Art of Not Being Governed. Um, an anarchist history of upland east asia and it sounds very esoteric but but it's not i mean he's talking about state power uh being grounded on the control of of grain and manpower grain and labor um and uh, it's a very interesting book um let's see there's an older book called the theory of peasant economy um and and all of these books are are getting at this question uh, of subsistence and i think a lot of young sustainable farmers have sort of two things going what motivates us to farm in the first place uh... might be different from the values we take on as what you said an entrepreneur or what cody hopkins has called an agro eco you know or something like this um, so you know it, it, it's hard to say um, let's see uh, I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head. Um, when, and when do you go to when do you go to publication with your um, degree? Oh, with your, what's I it? don't know. Uh, in, in a couple of months, probably. But uh, publication, it might be longer than that. Um, because again, like I mean, I am in an academic situation, and what I'm writing is a fairly academic text. Um, and there's a very, I think there are much more simple and straightforward way to say these, to say these things. Um, and so, um, you know, all of this is very much connected to the to the practice of farming. I think if anybody has farmed, you certainly see how human labor is the cheapest thing. It's the lower level uh, lower level to investment, so to speak. Um, it's the thing that can be, you know, that that farmers have to give if they don't have any money. Well, I've got labor. Sort of thing, um, and um, you know these questions are very practical. And I, I think if you think about uh, slavery and oppression, not just of humans but of of animals and and other uh, life forms as well, I, I think that a lot of these things uh, come out of you know the daily experience of farming if you let them. Um, and, and I think that we we really must because. Um, you know, if we're going to build an agriculture that is truly sustainable, it's going to have to wrestle with some of these issues. Um, a lot of the agronomic issues, we're starting to get a very good hold on, I think. Um, and uh, models for success in terms of husbandry and horticulture. Um, but the way to structure this socially and economically uh, is, is still a big question. And I, I think you see this with, if you 
think about, you know, the common criticism of, of organic food or it's locally It's for rich produced. people. You can only afford it's to pay those prices. That's right. And then that's my right. answer to that is, well, that's great. Well, the rest of the food system is powered by slavery and laser beams. Laser beams, that's right. Well, and, and I mean, I was talking to a neighbor today whose grocery bill has gone up almost 100% in the last couple of months. Um, she's feeding five people. Um, uh, you know, it's the price of that food, of industrial food, is actually coming up to meet the price of organic food. And, and because of all of our costs were already internalized, there's less of a need uh, to raise our price. They were, uh, it's already calculated there. Um, and so it's going to be very interesting that, that industrial food may very quickly approach uh, the price of more sustainably raised food. And, and, you know, and as the contrast you brought earlier, uh, up earlier, you know, if this is really just an economic issue, if it's not a philosophical issue uh, or a normative issue, if it's really just about economics, I mean, then, then that's, that's going to be the driver um, is, that, is when these prices converge on each other. Well, I mean, and this is a thing where uh, relying on the the kind of knee-jerk supply and demand uh, stimulus to Mm -hmm. shift an economic system of production is really inadequate when you talk about the scale and speed and scope of what what project we're, we're, you know, essentially Mm -hmm. throwing ourselves in the middle of, our very Mm -hmm. difficult but very interesting problem that we're kind of setting for ourselves. And, you know, yesterday I was sitting on the airplane next to a man who runs the North Carolina Cisco mm-hmm. company, the wow. silver truck. And I said, like, how could we convince you guys in the distribution end of the food system at that end of the supply chain to, you know, become protagonists in, this, in the same way that we are at our production end and to start, you know, internally reallocating resource to moving forward uh, in terms of regional self-sufficiency, and you know, putting a little margin on your chocolate soy milk that comes from Brazil or your coconut water, and starting to build capacity um, and invest in the infrastructure needed um, to to purchase more local and to support local growers who need to to be able to slowly get up to pallet scale um, on the supply end. And you know, he was kind of like, "Well, show me, you know, show me the consumer demand." And I felt like, well, you know, that's an easy argument to make. Dairies go out of business because there's not enough demand for milk, you know, or, you know, it's easy to make these kind of glib economic arguments about the marketplace. But when you look at the farm level, you know, if 10% of the farms go out of business in one year because of prices falling down, rebuilding um, the productive capacity in the dairy sector after herds have been liquidated and equipment's abandoned and fences come down and corn goes in and et cetera, uh, you know, becomes almost a structural impossibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like a well, really complicated capital- set of negotiations where you require of current players that they start, in, like, embedding a vision in their, you know, current market practices. Mm-hmm. And I think the capital requirements are so large for some of these operations uh, that it, it just effectively excludes smaller players um, and and it, there's uh, you know and then the question becomes is it profitable enough for uh, an investor to invest that money 
And, uh, you know, historically, it doesn't appear that agriculture has ever been very profitable. Um, <laughs> you know, subsistence, farming, you know, still 75% of the world eats every day from their own labor, right? But that doesn't mean it's profitable in the capitalist sense. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a, a big question for small-scale farmers, uh, and it's also why vegetable farmers and vegetable CSAs, I think, have caught on more quickly. There's just less required to raise a vegetable CSA for 30, 50, 100 families, capital-wise, than there is to, to you know, do milk at that level or cheese at that level um, or even eggs at that level. Um, and it, it, it's going to require us to also look at our consumption habits as well, because maybe we can't drink milk every day like that, or, you know, I don't know what it would be. Um, but, you know, I mean, we, fight, we face this all the time. Like, we, you know, there was a, a person who was thinking about investing in the farm, but the rate of return was just so low that he, he just couldn't get excited about it. And he, you know, wasn't excited about the farming, so, you know, it, it's, it's been quite frustrating for us, um, and and we have just decided, you know, that the goal is to make a livelihood and and not a salary um, out of this. Um, but that's so. but again, you know, so I've just spent the last month in the library working on my almanac, mm-hmm. new farmers almanac project, which I will soon be bothering you about again, um, sure. especially since now I know your publication um, is approaching, but. You know, always in the description of the cultural atmosphere around the frontier um, and in early American agriculture has been this um, kind of tone or, let's say, moral overlay, wherein the valuation of labor, farm goods, land, infrastructure, um, and kind of farmer-to-farmer support Mm -hmm. has always had a moral rather than an economic Valuation and that That's you right. know, solidarity yeah. expressed to your neighbor could not be seen in in its monetary context, and instead must be seen um, as a as a cultural good. Mm-hmm. I so think that in right. that sense, it's like there's all these economic issues to figure out, but underlying that um, is also just a consensus, you know, in the parties who are playing these roles to to value things differently, especially internally, you know, within the sector. Yeah, well, just think about it. Think about economics and what is that about? It's about value. What do you value? What is money worth? What is this worth to you? That's a, that you're already giving it value, and, and I do. I think that you, you quickly confront the need to come up with a kind of a general account of value before you can rebuild an economy and, and and that you know that's you know to, to talk about reconstructing the values that drive our economic decisions that's that's a deep question that's a deep question and it's an everyday question it has something to do with what you eat and put in your body and buy every day as a necessity um, and I mean this is exactly why it's also political at the very bottom I mean these things, uh, you know, are, are so personal um, that we all do them every day, that they're the basis of our bodily, organismal lives, 
gives the people who raise the food or grow the food or make the food a special uh, responsibility and a, you know, and a special uh, place to make profit, right? I mean, the great thing about selling Cheerios is that you eat Cheerios and you have to come buy more of them. Um, you don't just put the box on the shelf and look at it. Um, <laughs> and that, that's like this place where a lot of money is being made and like you're not going to talk Cisco into not delivering this food because there's money to be made. Um, and the question is, is the same amount of money to be made at a lower level, or is that just more people making less money from the same food? Yeah, or, or the people along the supply chain negotiating within themselves kind of more fluidly and proactively where those margins get allocated. That's right. And, and, Which is, and, I mean, and you, see... you know, I'm willing to engage in the idea of uh, a negotiation and a collaborative process instead of only thinking in terms of confrontational uh-huh. But I just don't know how willing everybody <laughs> others would be. Uh-huh. 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 Um, and, and it is, it comes down to what you value. Um, and, you know, if you don't value clean water or a clean environment or, uh, you know, socially just economic practices, then, then yeah, then it's a non-starter. You know, then what do you do? Where does the dialogue go from there? So you know it's both a risk and a and a and a benefit from from dealing with this question in terms of value. So, obviously, southern sog is a valuable resource for those farming in the south. Mm-hmm. You want to lay out some more um, top picks on team on people places places to meet people 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 places to go things mm-hmm. to know about and um, kind of. If folks are interested in Tennessee and being more agriculturally oriented around there, what should they start with? Well, the Tennessee Organic Growers Association, TOGA, which is going to have its annual meeting in March. Um, there's a, a, a nascent group that formed out of a SOG group um, that uh, is trying to get uh, all the young and new sustainable farmers organized more politically to begin to deal with the legislative issues that that are standing in our way. Um, And so there's a a growers association, and then it's called Tennessee Food, and there's a listserv um, that I can, if people email me, I can get them on that. But um, but the Southern Southern Song is a very old organization. Uh, They've been around for like 25 years. They were, you know, doing some of this stuff. Uh, you know, when we were children, um, and they've, they've stuck around and they've done a lot um, to bring together different organizations from across the South, and maybe you saw that at the conference, that one of the primary functions of Southern SOG is to get people together that don't ne- normally talk to one another, um, and it's, it just produces, you know, un- unexpected things, wonderful things. Um, and um, so, so Southern SOG and TOGA... Um, are two are two main organizations that I would recommend in Tennessee. Well, CJ, yeah. Once you get done with that whole project there of that, that academia thing, uh-huh. I think you might be inclined to join us in the political front. Yes. No. I mean that's that's what I would like to do. I would like that too. Are we are we done with the interview? 
Well, we're officially we must sign off. Everybody uh-huh. who's been listening, thank you so much. All 3,000 downloads are noticed and um, felt proudly as a surging sensation of momentum in my chest and in the chest of all those who join us here on the show. Um, this is Greenhorn Radio. We have many things coming up. Check out our events page, www.thegreenhorns.net slash events. Baltimore, Clearwater, New York, Hudson, Providence, Austin, Texas. Shit is flying. Go check it out. Thank you, CJ. Thank you, Severine. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com.